can I just get your horses? I'll make my coat Okay, people. <clears throat> I'd like to begin uh, by reading two um, paragraphs from the book of Isaiah. The, um, there's a major section of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, um, that begins and ends uh, with a paragraph about God's word um, and its power. And so I'm going to read those two paragraphs, um, chapter 40, verses 1 to 11, first. Um, and it might help you to know that the people to whom this prophecy is addressed um, are people whose parents, at least, had been uh, taken off into exile to Babylon. Um, and uh, it's a community that has uh, been in exile for, for half a century. Uh, and this prophet knows that God is about to rescue them and make it possible for them to go home. Uh, but it's hard for them to believe that. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places are plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out! And I said, What shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, and then from chapter 55, the other end of that big section. Chapter 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my plans are not your plans, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my plans than your plans. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and succeed in the thing for which I sent it.
Any uh, phrases out of that that strike anybody? Sounds interesting, doesn't it, down the corridor? Sounds like um, children in a gymnasium uh, practicing doing dancing to what do you call it? To doing like um, what are these? To what do you, the thing that um, you know when you dan dance for keep fit purposes? I forgot what you call it. Again, again. Aerobics. Aerobics. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes, it was um, a big deal in the 1980s. <laughs> Don't think it exists now, does it? Funny. Still exists, does it? Must have a different name. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it's good that somebody's enjoying their aerobics. Down there. How about anybody struck by anything in Isaiah 40 or 55? <laughs> Actually, it fits quite well. You shall go out and enjoy. Uh, it, it's, it read at the point where I uh, stopped. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Anne used to say, used to think that was a very, there's a song um, which some of you probably know about um, all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Yes, you remember that? And Anne used to complain that because she thought it was really stupid. Trees can't clap their hands. And I pointed out to her one day, I looked at, see that tree waving in the wind? It's clapping its hands. And, and she said, oh yeah, so it is. It was the only argument I ever won in my married life. <laughs> Uh, however, any verses in chapter 40 or 55 that anybody was struck by? Hello? I suppose I was interested in the Isaiah 40 passage because it's about Jesus. Because it's about Jesus? Right. Right. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Later on, uh, that's right, John the Baptist is uh, picking up that and, uh, and, and seeing that the kind of thing God was doing then uh, and the things that God said then can help you understand what's going on. Uh, that's right, in Jesus. Yeah. Okay, you miseries. Um, I'm going to make you sing anyway. Your miseries. Uh, the, the, um, you see, I think those are just such terrific passages about the Word of God and the power of the Word of God and God's Word is going to be fulfilled. Aren't you excited? Aren't you a little bit excited? Yes. Oh, okay, that's better. Come on, right. So I, I guess for me it's the reverse thing that rather than look at it this way, it is interesting how it is gospel to its recipients. Mm -hmm. even, mm. if, even if Jesus Christ hasn't come yet, mm -hmm. you can still see it as a, go as a gospel, mm. as a good news, mm. those who will hear this mm. message. Yeah. Yes, God is coming. He's fulfilling His mm. word. He's restoring us and redeeming us. Thank you. Yes. Continue to what you were saying, that the Old Testament is in connection to the New Testament, but even in itself, you can see that there is something gospel about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, here are these people who are cut off from their own country and have been abandoned by God because of their sin and who are convinced that God has finished with them and can't believe that God's purpose for them is going to be fulfilled. And here's the prophet saying, God's spoken. 
You can't believe it. You think it's totally hopeless. But you've just forgotten this factor. The word about God will endure forever. Um, and uh, it's, that, it's, it's a word that's expressed uh, in God's promise that will be fulfilled for you. Um, so we're going to sing a hymn uh, about God's word. In which we ask for God to break the bread of life to us. And you are so silent and miserable that you need really to mean this prayer, right? Um, and I don't know whether you know the tune or whether we only know, only British people know this tune, but I'll sing it and we'll see what happens. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou didst break the loaves beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. Bless thou the truth, dear Lord, to me, to me. As thou didst bless the bread by Galilee. Then shall all bondage cease, all fetters fall. And I shall find my peace, my all in all. Teach me to live, dear Lord, only for Thee, as Thy disciples lived in Galilee. Then all my struggles o'er, then victory won. I shall behold Thee, Lord, the living One. Gracious God, we thank You for that word that You spoke uh, to your people in ancient times and that you declared certainly would find fulfillment in their lives and it did uh, we thank you for the way that the New Testament guys were able then to look at Jesus in light of that word and we pray for the grace ourselves to look at our lives in the light of that word of yours and to see it fulfilled in the life of your church and in our lives as individuals even in our day we ask and we ask that as we study it tonight you may increase some more our understanding of what that means and our expectation of that proving true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so on page 47, I'm going to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, and then after the break, we'll come and think some more about values. And we'll look at the uh, values expressed in some scriptural passages and think about their um, comparison and contrast with uh, the values that you were thinking about for the homework for today. The inspiration of Scripture. Uh, and I go back to the passage from 2 Timothy that I read earlier on, um, which is the only passage that directly talks um, about inspiration, that actually uses the word inspiration uh, within Scripture. Where Paul reminds Timothy to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How on earth are they able to do that extraordinary thing? 
because these are uh, writings that were written uh, long before Jesus' day, like like those passages from Isaiah. Um, And uh, yet Paul says they're able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How can they pull that trick? Answer, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired by God. Um, and the, uh, the Greek word is theopneustos. You can see thea as the word that comes in theology, the word that means God. And pneustos uh, is related to the word for spirit, pneuma, um, but an adjective from it. So it's literally God-breathed, God-spirited. Um, given by inspiration of God uh, is a paraphrase for the word, which I think doesn't occur. We don't have any other, other examples of the use of this word uh, before New Testament times. Uh, and it's at least possible that Paul invented it because uh, he wanted a word to express uh, what, the, the, what, what he uh, knew was true about Scripture and invented a word in order to do it. The Scriptures... Um, then are, are inspired writings. Um, they, they are the word of God. Uh, though kind of amusingly, uh, it's, um, there's that one example of a reference to inspiration in Scripture. Uh, you don't find any references at all in Scripture to the Bible itself being described as the word of God. You find lots of places where particular sayings are described as the word of God or more commonly as the word of the Lord. Um, I've given you an example there with that phrase that we, the phrases we use it, the word of God uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 27 where uh, Saul has just been uh, anointed by Samuel um, and uh, sorry, Saul is just about to be anointed by Samuel. He's just uh, uh, met up with, um, uh, with Samuel. Uh, and um, Samuel says to Saul, tell the boy, that is the um, uh, servant that Saul has brought with him when he's looking for the donkeys is what they've been doing. Tell the boy to go on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while. Because Samuel wants this to be a thing that happens privately uh, between him and uh, Saul. Um, that I may make known to you the word of God. Which, if you take it out of its context, sounds sounds if he wants to um, give him a Sunday school lesson, uh, teach the word of God to him. But actually what he means is that uh, he wants to be able to speak the particular word that God has given Samuel uh, about Saul, about the fact that Saul is due to, to be the king. So there's an example of where a particular message uh, is described as a word of God. Uh, it's much more common for it, to be, for it to be described as the word of the Lord, um, as happened in that um, passage that I read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse um, 8. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Verse, verse 8 is the word of our God will stand forever. 
Did the phrase, the word of the Lord, come in 55? No. Never mind. That's all right. Uh, the the fr- phrases of that kind, the word, uh, the word of the Lord, or the word of our God, or the word of God, are used lots and lots and lots of times to describe a particular message that um, a prophet brings to somebody. Uh, and what then happened was that that uh, understanding of the significance of a particular message uh, was broadened out so that it could apply to the whole of Scripture. So it's as if, as if the whole of Scripture um, is an individual message from God. It's another way of describing um, Scripture, a much more common one than talking about it being inspired. Uh, uh, the other side of that, a link to that, is there are also other passages that talk about the involvement of the Spirit uh, in the coming into being of, um, of, of prophecies, of sayings. Uh, and one example is uh, in the, that I put you there, given you there in the reference to Numbers chapter 24, uh, in the story uh, of um, Balaam. Uh, when um, Balaam has been hired uh, in order to uh, invoke curses upon Israel, uh, but the trouble is, every time he, t- every time he tries, um, God won't let him, because God gives him words of blessing instead. Uh, it's very hard. He can't thereby earn his rent, earn his hire, as it were. Uh, and it's extremely um, uh, annoying for the man who's paid good money to get Balaam to declare these cursing words. Uh, Balaam tries hard, um, but he can't do it. Uh, what happens instead of his being able to deliver a curse, as it says in Numbers 20, chapter 24, verse 2, Balaam looked up and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. He's on the top of a, a mountain um, and the Israelites are camped uh, down in the valley below. Um, then the Spirit of God came upon him and he uttered his oracle saying, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is clear, the oracle of the one who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down but with eyes uncovered. In other words, he's kind of overwhelmed, um, but he's still able to see. Uh, and then declares that word from God. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. The Spirit coming upon someone. Um, a prophet like Samuel delivering a word. Uh, a prophet like Balaam being overwhelmed by God's Spirit. Now those are examples from outside of what we, from outside of the prophetic books. But as I suggested on the sheet, obviously those two descriptions are particularly characteristic of what we call the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on, uh, where uh, there is sometimes talk about the Spirit coming on somebody, uh, and that that's what causes them to speak, and that's especially characteristic of Ezekiel. Um, and sometimes it's more talk in terms simply of God's Word coming to somebody uh, without there being reference to the uh, Spirit coming on people. Um, and the difference, in part, probably reflects the awareness that there were all sorts of people who weren't true prophets, who um, claimed to be overwhelmed by God's Spirit and could behave and look as if they were overwhelmed by God's Spirit, but it wasn't really God's Word that they produced. So sometimes prophets were hesitant to talk about the involvement, the involvement of the Spirit because you couldn't prove it. 
and were more inclined just to talk about the word that you could then look at and test out as to whether it actually came from God. The prophets then especially stress how their words come from God in the form of the words or in the form of, uh, as a result of an experience of being overwhelmed by God's spirit. I think that's then a bit paradoxical is that it's also these uh, prophets who've got the books named after them who are most explicit in talking about the way in which their words came um, in a human, came through human beings. Many of the books in the Bible don't talk about their origin at all. Uh, So they don't say anything about them coming into existence because God inspired them, nor do they say anything about them coming into, into existence through a particular human being. It's strange, um, striking, significant, I think, that the prophets are both the guys who talk most about God's involvement in producing their words uh, and also the guys who talk most uh, about how historical and human their words were. They are, they are both of those things. They're not one or the other. They're not just divine um, and therefore there's nothing of the human in them. But neither are they human with the result that they could have mistakes and they don't really come from God. And the beginnings of the prophetic books, um, characteristically, nearly all of them, make both those two points about the divine origin, but also the human origin of the words that will follow. So, for instance, Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, in the days of King Uzziah, Joth- uh, Kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, and also in the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Well, you'd have thought that you might have thought that would be then quite kind of timeless. It's just a heavenly word. But no, uh, the uh, introduction to Hosea goes on to draw it, draw your attention uh, to the fact that it came to a particular man, Hosea, son of Beeri. And uh, I chose Hosea as my example here because of the significance of the way in which chapter one, as you know from when we did that study of women's. Uh, the place of women in, the, um, in Scripture, um, the way that it goes on to talk about the significance of uh, Hosea's person uh, and Hosea's marriage and Hosea's children for his uh, message. Um, it was only by means of those personal experiences of his that he was able to articulate what God wanted to say to people. It was by means of his experience of his marriage and um, of their family life Um, that that he was able to say to people, this is what the word of the Lord is. Without that that human experience, he wouldn't have been able to say those things. The human experience was essential to the conveying of the message. The word of the Lord came then to Hosea, son of Beeri, the guy whom God then went on to uh, tell to marry Goma, um, and uh, who um, gave... Um, Hosea and Goma, the names of their children and so on, and spoke to people through them. Further, uh, this happened in the days of kings of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joseph of Israel. As if to say, and you won't understand these words through Hosea, not only unless you see the significance of their coming via this human person, but also unless you see the significance of the period in which Hosea lived, that God delivered this message uh, in that particular, in the particular context of those kings' reigns, 
And certainly it's got things to say beyond that time, as from time to time Hosea itself will make clear. And indeed it does that, in part, with the very reference to the um, Judean kings that it mentions in that introduction. Because Hosea actually fulfilled his ministry in northern Israel. But he's also inclined from time to time to draw the attention of people to the significance of the message for people who don't live in northern Israel and don't live in that period. But the starting point is understanding that period. Because the kind of things that need saying in that context are different from the things that will need saying in 100 years' time or 200 years' time. Um, And that uh, is something that becomes clear uh, when you look at prophets who say things which, in in a sense, are in another context would be true, but in the context in which they're operating, they're not true. The classic example is, in Jeremiah's day, the false prophet Hananiah, um, who says the kind of things that Isaiah would say, or that Deuteronomy would say, but the trouble is, he's saying them in the wrong century. Um, A prophet, it's been said, is somebody who knows what time it is. Uh, I'm sure, again, again, you can again see how that um, uh, works itself out uh, in the counselling room. There could be all sorts of things that you could say to a client... Um, that would be true, but aren't true with regard to this client in this context. What you have to know, out of all um, the head full of useful information you've got, an insight you've got, is which insights apply in this context? Because the wrong one could be totally misleading to this person. It's vital then, if the word of God is to come to people, that not only that that word actually does come from God, but it's that the word of God, but, it, but that it's the word of God that comes now, and not the word of God that was significant yesterday and will be significant tomorrow. Something similar, or the or the obverse of that, really, um, is applicable to those passages from Isaiah 40 and 55 that I read. Earlier in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah has been extremely um, critical uh, of Judah, told them what trouble is going to come upon them because of the way that they disobeyed God. Uh, and and, and that's, that's been proved true by the fact that these people have been taken off into exile. But if, if Isaiah came along in the context of when they'd been in exile 50 years and started berating them again, it would be uh, not, no longer God's word. No longer God's word directly applicable to them. As conversely, the kind of encouraging word that you get in chapters 14 and 55 wouldn't have been God's word if it had been delivered to, um, the, to the community a hundred years previously. A prophet is somebody who knows what time it is. The prophets then stress the uh, origin of their word in God, but also stress its human and historical origin. It relates to uh, context in people's lives. People don't always believe that. Uh, There were some people who came to Ezekiel in the context of the exile uh, a bit before, well, yeah, 50 years before, when the people had first uh, gone off into exile. Um, In Ezekiel chapter 12, the reference uh, on the sheet, some people who came to um, Ezekiel uh, and complained to Ezekiel as they did to Jeremiah that the kind of things that he said never never came true. Um, never or and or never would come true. Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me. Mortal, 
the house of Israel is saying the vision that he sees is for many years ahead. He, prophesi he prophesies for distant times. Okay, maybe it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen in our lifetime. Therefore say to them, Ezekiel, uh, God says to Ezekiel, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be fulfilled, says the Lord God. And I quote that passage partly because you can find lots of books in Christian um, bookstores. I haven't checked the fuller bookstore. I should do this sometime, really. Uh, lots of paperbacks that offer you interpretations of uh, events in the Middle East over the past 50 years and what's going to happen next year and the year after uh, that say you can see Ezekiel's prophecies and Daniel's and other people's being fulfilled in these events. Well, I think well, if you said that to Ezekiel, he'd turn in his grave. Because Ezekiel knows that he's bringing a word that applies to these people in the now. I'm, I'm not talking about things that are going to happen in two and a half thousand years, says Ezekiel. The house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is for many years ahead, he prophesies for distant times. That's the assumption behind those paperbacks in the Christian bookstores that, it, that interpret Middle Eastern events in light of the prophets. What God says through Ezekiel is, none of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be fulfilled, says the Lord God. And it was. People were taken off into exile, and they were restored afterwards. The scriptures uh, in general, but the prophets in particular then, as the inspired word of God. Two implications of scripture being the word of God. The first is that because they are the word of God, they are certain to come about. Um, that was the, the point about those phrases from Isaiah 40 and 55. I've given you the references there uh, on the sheet. Here is a, a voice, apparently an angelic voice, that commissions um, the prophet to go and preach a message to this, these people who are in exile. A message that does bring gospel, does bring good news to them. A voice says, cry out, preach. And I said, preach what? What shall I cry? How can I preach, given who these people are? How can I expect them to listen? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. It's amazing the freedom that uh, people like these prophets have to, to talk back to Yahweh. You tell me to go and preach, but you're the guy. No, I'm sure he didn't say that's, that's too. Uh, you are the person who has blown, who's blasted his hot breath upon these people um, like the uh, hot breath of the uh, Santa Ana type winds and withered them. So that the people are like withered grass as a result of your spirit breath being breathed on them, your wind spirit breath being, ble being breathed on them. So what's the use of preaching to them when, when they are withered and dead like that? They can't hear. God's answer? Yep, you're right. The grass withers. The flower fades. But there is something you've forgotten, Mr. Prophet. But the word of our God will stand forever. If God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen even if the looks as if there's no potential in the people to whom you're going to preach. Uh, and it's um, 
the same point that's made in those verses at the other end in chapter 55. Uh, Think now about the way in which when it does uh, rain in the winter here uh, and the bare and browned hills uh, suddenly can come alive uh, with grass and with flowers. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they've watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. That's my image, that's my metaphor, says God. That's my simile. For the way that my word that goes out from my mouth will be. It shall not return to me empty, it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God says something is going to happen, it happens. Because God's word has got that power. If I say you've got A minus, you've got A minus. My word has power. Now you may send me a message saying, I think you've miscalculated my marks there, if you look. And when I look, you'll probably be right, because I'm not very good at math. Um, And uh, that happens. Um, But if my math was okay, then I'm afraid that no matter how good you think your paper is, it's my opinion that counts. I apologise. The professor is God in Fuller Theological Seminary. (laughs) Professor's word is what decides things. Or to give a more serious example, um, when when a pastor uh, marries a couple um, and they go through the uh, ceremony uh, and the pastor then declares that these two are man and wife, then they are man and wife. Or when the pastor baptises either a baby or a grown-up person and says, I baptise you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, they are baptised. Those words have power. And God's words are like that. God's words have power. When God says something, it happens. God says, let there be light. And there's light. God's words have power. As um, Hebrews puts it, slightly uh, less comfortably, uh, as Hebrews, Hebrews has a wonderful combination of being very comforting and very worrying. I've kept saying that one day I'm going to write a paper about Hebrews called Hebrews, Don't You Love It, Don't You Hate It? Because it's really terrific but pretty worrying at points. The Word of God is living and active. That sounds okay. Then it goes off, sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh dear. Piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, living and active, able to achieve things. Uh, And so, uh, and and that's the kind of um, significance that the scriptures attach to the idea of the word of God being infallible. Um, the word of God being infallible is really good news because it means that when God, something, when God says something, it will happen. Psalm, in Psalm 77, 8, the psalmist asks, Has God's steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Um, more or less, whenever you find the word promise in the Old Testament, uh, it'll be actually more literally the word word because the Old Testament hasn't got a word for promise. Have I told you that already? No? Well, I've told you now then. Uh, There isn't a Hebrew word for promise. Uh, So, more or less, whenever you come across the word promise, it's it's more literally the word word. But I'm just going to check to make sure that I'm not misleading you in this particular 
case. Oh, yes, it's okay. It's the word word. Whew. So, so more literally, has, has God's steadfast love, has the Lord's steadfast love ceased forever? Are his words at an end for all time? If that was so, then, they, then those words would be fallible. Um, like if I say, as I sometimes do to one of you, to somebody, um, uh, okay, I'll meet you in my office at six o'clock and we'll talk about that, and I forget and I don't show up. My words were then fallible. Um, God's word is not, infa is not fallible. God's word, um, God doesn't forget. Um, God's promises don't come to an end uh, for all time. Uh, similarly, uh, one King, the One Kings passage, part of Solomon's uh, prayer at the time of the dedication of the temple. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. I just better check whether that's word as well. But if I find it is, I'm not going to check any of the others because I'm going to um, trust that I got it right. Yes. Um, not one word has failed. Not one word has fallen. Literally it is. God's word has proved totally infallible um, to Israel. Um, and uh, Paul picks up that uh, notion in Romans. It is not as though the word of God had failed. Because you could have thought the word of God had failed. Because God had uh, promised to... Uh, God has sent his Messiah... Um, fulfilling his uh, promises to Israel, uh, but, but Israel hasn't acknowledged the Messiah. So it looks as if God's entire plan of salvation has failed. It turns out to be fallible. God's uh, commitment to Israel ha hasn't worked itself out because Israel hasn't acknowledged its Messiah. No, says Paul. Uh, the word of God hasn't failed, isn't fallible. Uh, to put it positively, uh, the word of God is true. Um, 1 Kings 17.24 is part of the um, story of, uh, it's part of one of the stories about, Eli about Elijah. Um, where Elijah had, um, the, a woman who'd, um, with whom, uh, who, who's, uh, looked after Elijah and she's, and she's kind of looked after him. Her son uh, has died. Um, so she gets Elijah to come uh, to uh, raise him from the dead. And Elijah does that. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that, the word, uh, that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Uh, and the same sort of usage of those expressions in 2 Samuel 7, which is the promise, uh, which is David's... Um, Promises from God about the building of the temple, in connection with the building of the temple, and about David's line. And David says to God, Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant. 
the word of the truth of the word of God is its uh, faithfulness, its steadfastness, the certainty of its coming about. It will prove to be true. It won't prove to be fallible. Um, God will keep His promises. That's the one connotation that attaches to the idea of the word of God. If something is the word of God, then it achieves um, what God intends. It's certain to come about. The other thing about being uh, the word of God, being the inspired word, is that fact again from which we started, the thing that 2 Timothy talks about, about the mysterious capacity of the word of God to speak beyond its original context. It's Because it's the inspired word of God, because the spirit was involved in the production of this word of God, it has this mysterious capacity to speak beyond its original context. And uh, Jesus uh, and Acts refer to that. When they, when they are pointing out that, that some passage says something that, uh, of significance with regard, to, for instance, to, to the gospel, to Jesus, that you'd never have realized that it w- would have come out of that passage, um, then, they, then they will draw attention to the fact that the Holy Spirit was involved in the inspiration of this text. That's what gives, us the, gives it this capacity to speak now. Two implications are then of the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, it's certain to come about, and it's got significance beyond its original context. How does inspiration work? Well, here are three ways that the Scriptures talk about the way inspiration works. One is that it's like using an instrument, like a, like a violin or like a hammer, not much similarity between a violin and a hammer, um, but both, the, both of those are instruments that the uh, scriptures uh, use or that post-scriptural theology has used in order to understand the, the way in which God works by means of scripture or by means of somebody. Um, God speaks by the hand of somebody or by the mouth of somebody. Uh, Haggai talks in those terms. Uh, Acts talks in those terms. Or people speak by the Spirit. And the implication of, each, of any of those is that, well, if you're the hammer, you don't contribute anything to the um, banging. Well, you, you, you do, but it's the, the energy is coming from somewhere else. The violin is useful, useless unless somebody is playing it. Uh, and it'll be useless if, if the person who's playing it is themselves useless. What's key is who's playing it. Uh, and uh, that image suggests how... Um, complete is the identity between the word that the prophet utters and the God who inspired it. God's just using your mouth. It's as if you open your mouth and words come out, and if you're the prophet, you don't know what those words are unless you listen, until you listen to yourself speaking them. You don't make them up. You don't even kind of, uh, you're not involved even consciously in the receiving, on them, receiving on, of them. That's how completely is the, complete is the identity between the words you speak and God's words. It's one image. It's like using an instrument. Or another image that the scriptures use is that it's like uh, a a king dictating to a messenger. Um, The uh, narrative books sometimes talk about a king sending a messenger. uh, And the messenger will then say, thus says um, Sennacherib, the king of Israel. I'm sorry, this, this, that would be a, a surprising thing for him to say. Thus says Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Just stay awake, anything may happen. Um, and, and then the words come out from the messenger's mouth, but they are the king's words. It's as if um, the, uh, the messenger has taken dictation 
from the king. Uh, and the prophets use that image for understanding their relationship with God. It's as if they have taken God's dictation and they're now passing it on. It amuses me that uh, a lot of the evangelical books about inspiration uh, hurry to assure you that inspiration does not mean dictation. It's funny because the prophet's talking exactly in those terms. Uh, here is Jeremiah illustrating it by the um, relationship that he has with his, his own scribe, Barach. Jeremiah called Barach son of Neriah. Barach wrote on a scroll at Jeremiah's dictation all the words of Yahweh that he had spoken to him. So there's a chain here, you see. Jeremiah listens to God's dictation, and then Jeremiah dictates to Jeremiah to, to Barak, and then Barak go and, goes and delivers this word um, to the Jerusalem authorities. Jeremiah ordered Barak, saying, I am prevented from entering the house of the Lord, so you go yourself, and on a fast day in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the people of Judah who come up from their towns, ensuring that this chain of dictation uh, gets completed. Uh, and, uh, and yet there's something, one, there's another thing one needs to say about that image. The 2 Kings 18 passage that I put on the sheet is, one, is the one that talks about the king of Assyria uh, sending a messenger with things to say uh, from, um, from him. Uh, and the messenger says, Say to King Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you base this confidence of yours? Do you think mere wardress? And so on. The, the, the messenger delivers a message from his king. But this messenger um, has come a long way with this message. Now, perhaps one is to imagine him repeat, desperately repeating the exact words all the way he's riding on his horse uh, up the, you know, for two days in order to get to the Judeans. But I think it's more likely that Sennacherib told him to go and say, God told him, go and tell those Judeans what for. Or even, go and tell Judeans A, B, and C. But, but, but the messenger doesn't have to repeat the actual words of the king. The, me the messenger can use his own words, but they still come as the words of the king because he represents the king and has the authority of the king. Which means that uh, the, the personality of the messenger comes into the word. The messenger makes up the words even though they, they express what the king's message was. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the words, or that they're fallible. They're still what Sennacherib wants to say, but the words are actually formulated by the messenger. Um, and at least sometimes, it wouldn't seem to me to be, it would seem to me to be uh, logical to reckon, uh, from the way the prophets speak, that they speak as God's representative, with God's authority, but they actually formulate the words, even though they speak um, as messengers. Uh, and that's more, uh, that then melds into uh, when more overtly the prophets make up the words. Chapter 5 of Isaiah. Uh, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Uh, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. Isaiah is overt there that he's making up a song. He's being a singer-songwriter. Uh, and, um, and, and yet the... passage uh, is part of God's word to the Judeans via Isaiah, even though it's Isaiah who is writing the lyric. As I put on the sheet, it's then that God stands behind the prophet's words. Three ways of thinking about how inspiration works then. 
It's like God using an instrument when there's nothing of the human personality at all. It's like God sending a messenger and dictating a message uh, when the, um, it's the king's words uh, that, are, that are there. But the messenger may make a contribution. Uh, or it's the, the, other, the other extreme um, from the first way of thinking of it, where uh, the prophet makes up the, the message in the conviction that, God, that that's what God is saying. Um, and God, as it were, rubber stamps it by having it in his word. It, none of those makes a difference to the authority or the significance of the word. Whichever of those it is, the words have the same authority, the same significance, but um, there are different means whereby God um, brings about this mysterious combination of the words being utterly divine, but also utterly human. Well, let's stop for a minute and, let you talk, uh, and, and let, have you talk with each other a bit about some of those questions I put next on the sheet. You can talk about uh, when you think of the phrase inspiration of scripture, what does it mean to you? Um, you can think about when you think of God speaking through somebody, how do you think of that working? Do you think in terms of the infallibility or inerrancy of scripture and what do they mean to you? Uh, is literal interpretation of scripture important in light of that thing that Ezekiel says about um, the, the words being for now? Um, What's the relationship between intellectual study and faith, the conviction that if this is the word of God, in what sense do you ex examine it? And, and how, if at all, does that play in therapy? Um, talk to each other for about uh, some, whichever of those you fancy uh, for six or seven minutes. Okay? Go.
suddenly says, I believe this